I was doing very rewarding freelance work for friends and eventually clients. I just realized that that was the work that I probably should be doing, but it wasn't the work I was being paid to do because I was staying in this fairly comfortable agency bubble. Welcome to Career Relaunch, the podcast dedicated to helping you understand how to reinvent your career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have decided to step off the beaten path to reinvent their careers and do work that matters. We talk through their unique personal stories, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you understand what it takes to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest is going to discuss how he relaunched his career from working as a creative in the agency world to becoming a freelance designer, festival founder, and lecturer. We'll discuss the importance of maintaining positive professional relationships and considering the meaning behind your work. Afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'm going to describe how I decided when to turn my side gig into my full-time job. Today, I'm speaking with Luke Tong, who began his career as a creative for various agencies in the UK, but eventually branched off on his own to build his own portfolio career. He now describes himself as a Birmingham-based, shorts-wearing, type-loving freelance graphic designer at large. He devotes his time toward art-directing magazines, lecturing at the Birmingham City University, and organizing events including Glug Birmingham and the Birmingham Design Festival. Now, I first stumbled upon Luke when I read his perspectives in a recent Moo Design article and was really struck by his thoughtful perspectives on his own career evolution. So I immediately reached out to him to see if he wanted to share his story on the show. And we also had a chance to meet in person after he invited me to speak at the recent Birmingham Glug event he helped organize. If you've been tinkering with a side project and thinking about whether to devote more of your time and energy to it, I hope our conversation today can give you some clarity on how and when to move forward. You can get all the show notes from today's episode at careerrelaunch.net slash 58. Luke spoke with me from Birmingham, England. Good morning, Luke, and welcome to Career Relaunch. Great to have you on the show. Good morning, Joseph. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. Well, first of all, great to meet you in person earlier this month in Birmingham at the Glug Festival there. I don't always get a chance to meet all the guests on this show, so it was great to meet you in person. Yeah, it was lovely how that worked out. So thank you for coming. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was hoping you could start off by sharing a little bit about what's keeping you busy right now in both your professional and your personal life. So professionally, very busy, probably busier than I've ever been, which is... Um, an interesting place to be. I'm learning how to juggle multiple things at once. So I'm in the middle of the last few weeks of kind of preparation for the Birmingham Design Festival, of which I'm a co-director. So that's taking up a lot of my brain bandwidth at the minute. I'm also trying to uh, juggle successfully some freelance client work, which I have going on, which is uh, really enjoyable. And I'm sure we'll talk more about why it is that I'm doing that in a bit. We're kind of on Easter break, actually, at the minute, but I'm, I'm also prepping some teaching bits to go back with after Easter. And then uh, outside of that, just trying to keep my wife happy and keep sane <laughs> and uh, yeah, a bit of DIY and uh, just general life stuff. So yeah, it's good. A, a good balance, I think. Yeah, it is good to keep the wife happy. I think uh, that's a, that should always wife, be a priority. Exactly. I was told that <laughs> yeah. just before I got married. I've always kept that in mind. And you mentioned your freelance client work. What sort of client work do you do right now? And what sort of area of design do you work on? 
So I say that I specialize in two areas, and that's brand identity and editorial work. And as it happens at the minute, I have both a big brand identity job, which is rebranding an agency, and a big editorial job, which is a, a promotional magazine for a client in London. They're the kind of two areas that I've gravitated towards throughout my career, and they're the things that I feel like I'm any good at and uh, the bits that I enjoy. So it's nice to have one of each of those on the go at the minute. It's not always like that at all, but um, they're the kind of things that really get me going within design. So you have a true portfolio career then (laughs) managing the design festival, which we're going to come back to at the end of the conversation, because I do want to spend some time talking about that and how you started that, doing some teaching, but also doing some brand ID work and editorial work. So very, very interesting. So I know that you haven't always had this sort of portfolio career, if you will, in its current existence. And I know you spent a good chunk of your time working in the agency world as a designer. Can you just give us a sense of what that chapter of your career looked like? And then we will move forward in time from there. Like most graduates do, I was encouraged to get an agency job and I was very fortunate to do that. It didn't happen straight away. So I left university with a a very good degree from a very good university fully expecting to walk into a job, which didn't happen. So I I went to Woolworths for a few months, as you do. And then I was very fortunate, actually, someone there put me in touch with a person in an agency and my CV got passed on. And I landed a very nice junior job in a, a big design agency in Nottinghamshire, where I was for three years. So that was kind of my formative junior years. And then I moved to Birmingham and spent another seven years in a, another big agency, very similar in the jewelry quarter, Both of them were kind of big marketing, advertising, design agencies with 50 or 60 people in the studio working on big international clients, brand names, household names, much of it FMCG work. So work for supermarkets and promotional items and that kind of thing. It was a very good grounding and very interesting time. uh, And I learned a lot from it, but I definitely felt like in the 10 years, I kind of squeezed out as much as I needed to and as I could from that kind of line of work. Now, I think when we spoke before, you know that I spent a good chunk of my career in brand management and a number of those years were actually in FMCG or fast-moving consumer goods. I was client-side, but I spent a lot of time working with a lot of different design agencies, both in the US and the UK. For those listeners who aren't familiar with agency life, what's it like to work at an agency, broadly speaking, and I'd love to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly. As a young designer, there's no better place to be. And I still say that to designers who I'm teaching and who I'm mentoring in the industry, that I think you stand to learn a huge amount because the the work is very fast-paced. Usually, design briefs will be turned around in a, a number of hours or maybe a number of days. Very rare that you'll have weeks. So that was a shock to the system, but that's a good thing. It gets you working in a much faster way. It's quite fraught at times, especially if there's pictures on. You might be required to work quite late, uh, unsociable hours. And sometimes the culture is not as brilliant as you would want it to be. I think that there's still a lot of issues that the industry is kind of wrangling with regarding sexism and elitism and, you know, some of the seedier side of things. So, of course, in as in most big companies, I think you're, you're probably exposed to some of those things that for me, I wasn't always comfortable with and maybe just kind of ticked a few of the boxes of reasons why I wouldn't want to work in a certain place or a certain industry anymore. So 
that was kind of the, the negative side of it. The, the positive side was, of course, working with some amazing people and uh, getting to do very diverse work. Often in agencies, you're doing different things week to week. So the work is, is quite fresh and exciting. And being a part of a big machine can be quite rewarding. You don't have to go and find your own work. It just comes to you every day. So you, you turn up to work and you get a brief and off you go. I think most people kind of get to that point there, maybe where they, they start to question whether they've plateaued and if they want to take a bit more control. Okay. So that's a good segue into what I was hoping to talk about next, which was your transition. And I first discovered you because you were recently featured in Moo, which is the, for those who are not familiar, the online stationery company based in London, or I actually get my own business cards printed. So I thought that was kind of cool. And in that article, you mentioned that you entered the work scene, but you didn't find it exactly satisfying for the soul. What did you mean by that? And what did you do about that? I'm one of those people who can't divorce the work from the meaning attached behind the work. And the, I take that responsibility very seriously. I think I always have. And without trying to seem too worthy about it, I think design is a vocation for a lot of people. You feel like you, you enter that industry because you're very passionate about communicating with people. And I have a strong kind of moral compass and a, a grounding in social action and wanting to make a positive mark on the world rather than just any old thing. Design is a great opportunity. It's a great tool because you're communicating with people that comes with a responsibility. And a lot of the things that I was communicating on behalf of were not necessarily adding value to anyone's lives or days. It was part of the marketing advertising churn of products and making people buy things or making people want things and not necessarily always things that were good for them. I'm teetotal. I've been straight edge my whole life. And yet I was working on alcohol brands for a number of those years. So not that I was casting value judgments on, on the products, but I was just feeling like, I think I reached age 30 and I started when I was talking in presentations thinking about legacy, even at that youngish age and just kind of how proud I was of what I was putting out there. And I didn't feel enormous satisfaction anymore from promoting that kind of stuff. And at the meantime, the flip side was I was doing very rewarding freelance work for friends and eventually clients that was largely magazine-based or brand identity work that I was really proud of. So helping charities or churches or organizations promote themselves. I just realized that that was the work that I probably should be doing, but it wasn't the work I was being paid to do because I was staying in this fairly comfortable agency bubble. So speaking of freelance work, Luke, this is a topic that comes up for a lot of people who are working in their full-time jobs and they have a separate passion. So they squeeze it into the evenings and the weekends. And I think the other thing you said in the article, which I thought was interesting, was that no number of side projects could compensate for the imbalance that you were feeling. What was the imbalance you were feeling just trying to, I guess, balance both your day job and also your freelance work? Precisely that. that I, I think I, I'd identified the work that I was good at and I identified the work that I cared about, but I hadn't figured out whether I could financially make that pay enough to just cover the bills. And at the time, my wife and I had bought our first house after renting for a number of years. So there was, there was a mortgage consideration and I'd always been told, you know, you can't, you won't get a mortgage on a freelance wage. If you've just started out, you need several years of books behind you. So it was kind of an issue of timing and just working out 
where we wanted to be when. So we, we kind of uh, made a bit of a plan together and we bought this house and got the mortgage. And then it felt like, okay, now is the time to take this risk. We don't have children yet. So it was just the right timing. And I think as well, I'd realized that I was becoming more and more unhappy. I think my wife would agree. And she was getting more frustrated that I was frustrated in my work. It was purely a fear-based thing that I just, I wasn't sure if I would be able to cut it as a freelancer. This is a really interesting topic, Luke, because there's a couple things you're mentioning here. First of all, I guess, making sure that your wife is on board with the plans that you have, but also you mentioned the income and trying to figure out whether or not you'd be able to generate enough income from your freelance work to make up for any sort of full-time income that you're letting go of, which I know is something that comes up for a lot of people trying to decide when the right time is to make a move. I know you mentioned the mortgage, so financially this was a good time to do it. How did you know that this was the right time to make your move? A couple of years ago, one of the magazines that I'd worked on helped me win an award, which was a Freelancer of the Year Award. And that was while I was still in full-time employment. It got very little recognition at work. Kind of no one was interested. But to me, it was quite a big step that I was being recognized as a credible freelancer while I was still full-time. So I was kind of living this dual life and working very long hours. That's the other thing I should say. Like none of this recognition or uh, you know the moderate success that the projects I'd had came without enormous hard work. I was working late into the evenings, most nights and weekends. And it was just a unsustainable. It wasn't really fair on my wife and my health was probably deteriorating a little bit. So all of these kind of things were indicators that I, I was just really ready to take that leap. The financial thing was interesting because a client which I had, uh, who I'd worked with for several years, promised me a big piece of work the following year that was probably maybe a third of the income that I needed from that year. So having that in my back pocket as a safety net was another part of the puzzle that made me think this is worth the risk. And actually, if it all goes wrong, I can just go and get another agency job. It's not this or death. It's just this or maybe a job that you don't want to be in. We talked about it long and hard for a number of months and we made sure we'd saved up so there was a financial cushion. And actually, in an amazing kind of turn of circumstance, the day that I, I think it was the actual, my last day at work, I got a phone call from the university in town where I'd got some really good connections through mentoring and speaking. And they offered me part-time employment two days a week. So I was very pleased to have that because that became then the kind of financial safety net that allowed me to be a bit braver in what I took on in my freelance because I knew there was always going to be a, a moderate income coming in to cover the bills, if nothing else. So you jump into the freelance world, you have the teaching set up, which is a nice financial cushion. What else did you spend your time doing that first year of your own business? At the start of that year, I'd met with a, a friend called Dan Alcorn, who's a, a really talented digital designer in Birmingham. And he had this itch that he desperately wanted to scratch, which was to put on a, a big design festival for the city. So that required a huge amount of both our time and energy that year to get things off the ground. So although I left agency world to go freelance and focus on my own work, I, I spent very little of it on my own work. I, I kind of split my time three ways between teaching, freelance and design festival planning and preparation. So actually it was a huge uh, relief and blessing at that time because it provided me with a huge deal of emotional support and focus and community that I think if I'd just gone from agency life to freelance, 
cold turkey, if you like, I think I would have really missed. But it gave me a network of, of friends in the industry who I was meeting with regularly and a real focus because you know there was a deadline. It was a huge design project, if you like, and it was all around people. So it was ticking a lot of boxes for me. So teaching plus the design festival kind of ticked that community rewarding teaching aspect, if you like, and then balance with my own freelance work. I was able to be quite selective and very fortunate about the kind of work that I, I picked up that year. So it, although it wasn't a huge financial success, it was okay for a first year. I think it was a fairly good introduction to what freelance could be because it just was a completely different way of life. So I thought this was a really interesting approach that you took where I could see a lot of people would be really focused on developing their own business. But my understanding of the design festival, and we will talk in more detail about that, my understanding of it is that it is very much focused on helping to enable other designers to be effective in their work. And it really is is you helping other designers get off the ground. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds... I hope it doesn't sound too lofty to say that because that really was our intention. I think the design industry is a strange thing because it can be very catty and very nasty at times and very competitive. But actually, there's this whole other side to it, which is an, and a huge tradition as well of people giving back and people opening up their their books and their knowledge and their studios to other people to share and to learn and to uh, propel other people forward. I was very fortunate to be a part of a collective, a website and a team called Form 55, which has now kind of changed its name and structure, but that purely existed to share other people's work and put other people into the spotlight. And when I look at it now, that for the guys that set that up, that was quite a brave thing in a way because you're immediately promoting other people for work above yourself it doesn't serve your own needs in a very kind of commercial way. But actually what it does is it grows you a network and it provides you with a voice in the industry, which is really valuable. And that credibility as well to be someone who's aware of what's going on and has something to say and, and maybe a, a small platform to say it on is really valuable. And I think it's really important as well in this day and age where you know there's a lot of mistruths and a lot of negative press, even around the industry, that there's still these people who are pioneering away or chipping away, doing their bit to, to give something back. Absolutely. So speaking of giving back and chipping away and trying to build something, it sounds like such a great idea to bring together a community of people. And maybe there's somebody listening to this thinking, oh, like I would like to really, I'd love the idea of creating a, a community of people who are empowered and, and engaged. How do you actually create a festival? Like, could you just walk us through a little bit about, I guess, how you create it? And then also, how do you promote the thing? The first thing to say is we are by no means experts. So this is our second year coming up. So we've only really got last year's as evidence. We feel like it was a success. So I, I think the things that contributed that were a really important mixture of skill set in Dan and I as directors that we both brought unique things to the table that the other didn't have and doesn't have. And we're both very honest about that when we talk about the festival that it wouldn't operate as it has without one of us there. So that dynamic was really important. The, the next thing to say was we had tremendous help. So we've got a fantastic team of very talented designers from the city who we were friends with previously. So there was already a good trust network there that we, we basically just pulled together a bit of a dream team of who would we want to work on this thing with us. And that team of about 10 people really 
pushed it forward and kept each other going. So it was a, a huge undertaking, really, because we were very ambitious. A lot of people would start much smaller and do a maybe an introductory year or something, but we kind of jumped in with both feet and just thought, if we're going to do this thing, let's just go for it. Another aspect was that we had fantastic support from industry itself. So there are, are companies who will get involved with things, people like Moo this year who've come aboard, but last year at GF Smith and Foil Co. and awesome merchandise, just too many to mention, but people within the industry who were tremendously supportive, understood what we were trying to do and would kind of step up and back us in that. So that combination of years of industry networking, I guess, but want of a better word, or community building and connections, and then a good team on the ground, those two things, uh, and then the support of extra partners made it possible. They were kind of the big things. I think it snowballed. So that's the other thing to say is we didn't realize how big it might be when we started. And if we probably knew all of the things that would come our way, we maybe would have had a bit more trepidation. I think our enthusiasm and our desire to see it work was what kind of carried it through. Just try and think strategically about the mixture of gifts and characteristics and skills in your team. And don't just build a team that looks like you, build a team of people that can do things you can't. And hopefully then you've got enough breadth within that team to face the challenges that you will definitely face. That idea of kind of shared endeavor and everyone just pitching in and just doing what they can to make it a success was how we achieved what we did last year. The last thing I was hoping to talk about before we wrap up with more details about this year's festival are some of the things you've learned along the way of your interesting career journey. And the first thing I was hoping to hear about is something that you wished you had known that you now know about creating something of your own. I still feel like I'm at such an early stage in my own kind of freelance career. So I think the lessons that I learned were mostly learned in industry while I was in those agency roles. It may sound twee or cliche, but how you treat people really matters. And that's one thing that I've learned. People talk about this all the time, that the design world is a very small industry and that everyone knows everyone and degrees of separation. But that is so true. Nearly all of my paid work in my first year came from people that I used to work with in industry, either as colleagues or as clients that had then moved on. So how you treat people matters because people remember and people don't necessarily care so much about whether you did a fantastic job. They, they tend to remember how you made them feel and how you treated them and was the respect there. And obviously the work has to be good. That's a given. But that was made very clear to me that this thing that people say about that really mattering, it was evidenced for me in my first year because I think that was what made the difference about whether I could work with people or not was because I had a fairly good pre-existing relationship and a good uh, reputation with them. What about one of the things that you've learned about yourself having moved on from the agency world to build your own portfolio career? Maybe two things. One is that Ambition is okay. I think I used to think that ambition was a bit of a dirty word and it meant you were someone that was always hustling and you know trying to get ahead of someone else. But actually, ambition for the right purpose and with a, a good motivation behind it can be a really powerful thing because it can drive you to achieve things that maybe you, you didn't think you could achieve. So I think having ambition is okay as long as it's with the right reasons. And the second thing I think is that 
I've always considered myself an introvert. I was quite shy growing up. I was never the front person of anything. I, you know, I, I don't like being on stage. But what I've discovered is that if you train yourself and you take those steps when they're offered, so if you know, I was fortunate to do some training at work in public speaking, I was invited to speak at things and I said yes. So all of those kind of small steps have taken me from someone who would never want to be on a stage to now someone who is moderately comfortable on the stage. I wouldn't say I would enjoy <laughs> the limelight because I don't, but I'm prepared to do it now. And that's because of the, that journey I've been on of kind of pushing myself out of my comfort zone a little bit. I'd say just start small, kind of build up to it. And you never know that actually you, you may end up on that stage in a few years time, feeling okay about it, even if you don't feel like you're naturally that kind of charismatic, outgoing person. Yeah, that's interesting because I just saw you on stage a couple of weeks ago hosting the Glug events there in Birmingham, and I would have never <laughs> guessed that that you would be nervous with something like that. You just yeah. seemed so at home emceeing that event when you're up on stage. So that's that's interesting. I did want to pick up on one thing you just mentioned, Luke. You mentioned that ambition is okay. I'm reading between the lines here, but it sounds like there's like a negative connotation associated with ambition. I was curious what what's behind that. I think what it is for me is that in the design industry, there's been this kind of glamorization of about this word hustle and about, you know, doing whatever it takes to get where you want to be. And I think that hard work is really important. And I believe that you won't achieve anything great without putting the graft in. So, but I think this glamorization of people call it hustle porn or kind of this, this thing about always working and never switching off and, that's really damaging and it's really dangerous and people's mental health suffers because of it and people's families suffer. And I've seen people that have been so driven and so ambitious that it's been at a huge cost to them personally and maybe relationships have broken down or their health has suffered. I feel like ambition can be the driver of that sometimes. It can be this desire to achieve success and to get more material wealth or these things that we want if we don't have some kind of checks and balances in place that kind of temper that ambition or just make sure that it's not damaging us or other people, I think that's where my hesitancy comes with it. And it, it's a very positive thing, but it can be turned into a fairly negative or destructive thing. I think we're very fortunate in this industry to be doing design for a living, to be paid to be creative is a, a marvelous thing. But if we're not cautious with it and, and careful, we can burn ourselves out and burn other people out with this kind of desire for more. And that's where the, I think maybe sometimes the corporate world, certainly within design, can allow people to go or can foster that mentality of these all-nighters and whatever-it-takes attitude. I'm just coming out the other side of that and having experienced a little bit of that in my own desire to achieve some kind of degree of success. I'm now a little bit more balanced and a bit more realistic maybe about not overloading myself. I'd like to wrap up, Luke, with how we started this conversation and one of the things I know you're focused on right now, which is this year's Birmingham Design Festival. Can you just tell me a little bit more about the upcoming Birmingham Design Festival that's at the beginning of June? Like, What's this year's festival all about? And can you give us a sense of the scale of it, the, the venues, the speakers, the number of expected attendees? So we are still planning a lot of the things, but um, we've announced our speaker lineup already. So there's 60 plus fantastic speakers, some 
of which I'm sure your audience will have heard. I'd encourage anyone to go and have a look on birminghamdesignfestival.org.uk or just Google Birmingham Design Festival. You'll find us there and on all the social channels. We'll be putting out more information in the coming weeks about some of our big kind of headline events, but we have three big evening events that are kind of big celebrations of different aspects of design. So we have one that's all about community this year and then another that's about design for the screen. And then the last one is kind of... uh, people from big industry agencies, companies, uh, tech brands that you maybe haven't heard of, heard these stories before from these kind of household names. So it's a very diverse festival. We have three districts, as we call them, which are graphic, product, and digital. So there's a whole schedule of free events which take place over three days within those. So you can come and have 60 hours of free talks over three days, which is fairly unprecedented within design festival kind of circuits. And then there's workshops that you can pay for to learn from some of the best people in the industry and these uh, evening events where we all get together and hear from experts within these different sectors. And then there's other exciting social things that are happening around this. So people actually getting together in the real world. We've got a really interesting ladies wine and design program. And we're looking at issues around the pay gap and This year, the festival theme is truth, and we've really taken that to heart. So we're being kind of very brave, and that's our brief to speakers, is just come and give us their truth you know, about their industry, their experiences, any issues they've got, um, things that they think we're facing, so that we can just be part of this conversation. If anyone's up for it and just wants to come and immerse themselves in design and push their own practice a bit further and meet like-minded people to get themselves to Birmingham in the UK for a few days in June, sixth, seventh, and 8th. Thank you so much, Luke, for telling us all about your former life as a designer and also how you created this Birmingham Design Festival alongside Dan Alcorn and the things that you've learned along the way. So best of luck with the upcoming Design Festival in June and look forward to hopefully crossing paths with you again. Thank you so much for having me, Joseph. It's been a real pleasure. So I hope you enjoyed hearing Luke's thoughts on his decision to go freelance, the motivations behind his moves, and how he's bringing other creatives in his community together. Now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'm going to explain how to tell when it's time to turn your side gig into something more. Before we get to today's Mental Fuel, I just wanted to thank A2 Hosting for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. A2 is the web host provider I use and trust for my own websites. They even offer 100% carbon neutral green hosting. For an easy, fast, and affordable way to get your personal website online today, visit careerrelaunch.net slash A2 to get 50% off your web hosting plan. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. And for today's Mental Fuel, I'd like to pick up on one of the things Luke and I discussed about how he decided when the right time was to leave his stable job behind and fully cross over to devoting himself to the freelance work he'd been doing on the side. This question of when to turn your side gig into something more is a common question that comes up with people, especially if you find yourself enjoying your side job, venture, freelance work, or independent consulting gig more than your day job. And this was a question I faced myself in 2013 when I was really enjoying the career coaching work I was doing on the evenings and weekends and not exactly finding my day job as a global brand marketer at a large corporation quite as satisfying, although I still felt 
I developed some solid branding skills and that marketing could still give me a promising, reasonably satisfying career future. So I really struggled with three things when it came to deciding whether or not to turn my side gig into my full-time job. Namely, whether I could turn what I had been doing on the side into a viable business that generated a comfortable income for me and my family, whether I was ready to walk away from the stability of my full-time corporate job, and when exactly the right time would be to make a leap. So I'll start off by saying there's no magic formula to deciding when the right time is to make any major change in your career, but I thought I'd share five clarifying questions I asked myself that helped me come to my decision which you could consider asking yourself if you're wrestling with whether to leave your day job to devote more of your time to one of your side projects. Question one related to family. Is this a reasonably good time to do this, considering my family situation? So back in 2013, I'd just gotten married to my wife. We didn't have kids yet. And everything was also pretty stable and manageable with the rest of my family commitments. So it felt like introducing a bit of volatility into our lives was something we could weather. Question two related to viability. Can I see a path to profitability? To making a living doing this work? To having enough work coming my way to pay the bills and have the lifestyle I want? At the time, I'd sat down and mapped out a few realistic paths to my work being financially sustainable and tested out my pricing with some potential clients, so felt like I had a reasonably good shot at generating enough income from this if things went roughly according to plan. Question three related to mitigation. Do I have a concrete, viable backup plan in place if things don't work out? In my case, I'd felt like I'd built up a solid track record in the corporate world as a brand marketer on some well-known brands and some solid relationships with recruiters, so felt pretty well positioned to return to the marketing industry if things didn't work out. Question four related to opportunity cost. Have I been saying no more than yes to side opportunities due to my capacity or any other conflicts with my day job? At the time, I actually found myself having to turn away a few clients and some potential workshop opportunities because of my work commitments, lack of extra time, and frankly, just my lack of energy, which wasn't a great feeling. And finally, question five related to finances. Do I have a reasonably solid financial cushion to ensure I don't go under if it takes longer than I expect to get things off the ground? So in my case, my wife and I sat down and did the math and defined how long we could go if I didn't earn any income for a while and how much we were willing to eat into our savings before I resorted to that plan B I mentioned before. And beyond these five questions, I also thought about a couple other factors, like whether I would regret not doing this at this time and how long I wanted to tolerate limiting the work I really enjoyed doing to the evenings and weekends. And by answering these questions, it definitely helped make the case for making the leap. Still, and I think this is what happens in most cases when you're making a big decision, I could find plenty of arguments against the idea of leaving, like the fact I didn't have my UK citizenship yet at the time, which made the timing of going self-employed not so great, or the fact that we were still renting our house at the time, 
which would argue for the idea of maintaining a steady corporate salary to build up enough savings so he could buy a place, or even just the carrots dangling in the distance at work, some exciting projects coming up, prospects for further promotion, etc., etc. And I think this is what makes these sorts of decisions tough, because there's always an argument for staying. In the end, I felt like the situation was optimal enough for me to make the leap, and later that year, I resigned from my brand role at haagen and focused my energies instead on my career consulting business, which is what I'm still doing today. What I've realized from working with a lot of different clients who have made some sort of a leap is that finding a perfect time to make a drastic career change is pretty tough. So finding a good enough time is often the best you can do. So if you're also struggling with whether or not to turn your side gig into your full-time work or some other leap you're considering, maybe reflecting on these five questions can help you clarify when would be a good enough time to move on, knowing that there will be some trade-offs involved no matter when you decide to make your move. And most of all, keeping in mind that you do have a choice, you do have the power within you to make this choice, and you get to decide when the right time is to make this choice. This brings me to a quote from Dr. Phil. Sometimes you just got to give yourself what you wish someone else would give you. So my challenge to you is to sit down and capture exactly what the conditions in your life need to look like in order for you to feel comfortable enough taking the career leap you're considering. Whether you choose to focus on these five questions I've mentioned or not, try to clearly define for yourself what it would take and what you would need to believe for you to feel comfortable making your big move. If you're enjoying Career Relaunch, I'd really appreciate you leaving me a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts at careerrelaunch.net slash review, which really helps more people like you discover the show. You can also leave me a voicemail with your thoughts at careerrelaunch.net slash 58, where you can also find a summary of all the key concepts from today's conversation with Luke and learn more about that Birmingham Design Festival if you're interested in going in June. Again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash 58. In our next episode of Career Relaunch, we're heading to the Bay Area, where I'll be speaking with a management consultant turned investment associate turned CEO. We're going to talk about her decision to leave her former role so she could create a lifestyle that allowed her to focus on what's truly important to her. Thanks so much for listening to Career Relaunch, and a special thanks again to Luke Tong for joining us today from Birmingham. This episode was mixed by Richard Pennington, Electrocardiogram wrote and performed our original theme song. I'm Joseph Liu, and I'll see you next time.